You're listening to Field Notes in Philanthropy. I'm Patrick Center. I'm Tori Martin. I'm Matthew Downey. Hey guys, I have a story. I was a young reporter in Youngstown, Ohio. WYTV, the ABC affiliate, and this would have been spring of 1999, Mm. and there was a tornado outbreak in the panhandle. Now granted, Youngstown is up near Pennsylvania. Yeah. The tornado is taking place, or has already taken place, in more Oklahoma, but the devastation was everywhere. That was massive. It wasn't even just one tornado. Wind speeds off the chart. As of now, scientists say it was the the tornado that had the highest wind speeds ever recorded on Earth. And it wasn't the only tornado. There were over 100. Yeah. So the general manager, the news director say, let's help out. Mm-hmm. The visuals are there. Let's help out. So we contact a local trucking company. They supply the tractor trailer, the driver. And then, well, my career, I think, in public broadcasting started really there took because off from this moment. noon, 5, 5.36, I was out there pitching, let's fill this tractor trailer. And not with your used clothes, but with things that the victims of the storm could use. So soap, toothpaste, shampoo shovels rakes so the general things that help you put your life back together and make it survivable right and you know what the community came out and we filled this trailer and off we went to more oklahoma and we worked with the local church and we distributed you know and of course it's a little self-serving right i you're working for an abc affiliate it's all about you know hey we're helping out we're there and so we're turning stories along the way There were some gruesome memories that I won't tell here. Mm. There were uplifting stories, stories Mm. of a family facing this tornado bearing down on them. This woman and her two kids live in a trailer in a junkyard, and they get inside this single wide, and the tornado just like, they're in the tornado. Oh my gosh. And I'm in the field with them. They all live. She gets on top of her kids, She's pointing to the mattress way over here, and there's wow. other items over here. Well, and just, in the middle of like what could become a flying circus of debris. Right, wow. and they survived. Wow. And it was just amazing. So this is well over a decade ago. This was back in the 90s, but it's something I'll never forget. And I won't forget how people are moved by the media's representation of these disasters and then how they can help out. Um, one of the stories that probably wasn't told and what would be interesting is the story of the donors to the truck like i wonder what their motivation was and what you know had they had experiences with disasters themselves and that's what's motivating them or is it just a big heart and concern for the well-being of others and they all have different motivations i imagine and the giving is so different today i mean if you think about what it was like in 1999 i mean you had to be on the news every half hour Mm. through the entire viewing evening because there was no such thing as kickstarter there was no online giving in 1999 trump was not tweeting in 1999 Neither was Barack Obama. There was no one out there filling in this space to do these large civic calls, except for members of the media who, you know, could record the mayor giving a speech. But if you didn't watch it on the six o'clock news, then it wasn't there. I mean, this made Dan Rather's career, right? That's true. People were reading the papers more than to the newspaper. But look what we've got going on right now. What, there's a hurricane in Hawaii? What is a hurricane doing in Hawaii? It's so uncommon. And there's forest fires. And we can't forget Puerto Rico and Syria. And now we've learned it's Yemen is the problem. I mean, look what's going on in the world. There's all of these disasters. 
There are 65.6 million refugees in the world today, according to the United Nations. That is the highest number of refugees um, who are in state of constant crisis since World War II. I mean, this is a a global level disaster that it's impossible for any one individual to get their head around. And yet every one individual wants to make some sort of difference. Right. And everybody gives differently, like you mentioned. And there are so many different ways to give now and so many disasters, I hate to say it, to choose from in in some ways. And everybody has a different geographical outlook or the areas that matter to them. So this is, again, great conversation to see how things have changed over the years and how people are giving. It's true because there's a difference, too, between how individuals give. You know, most disaster philanthropy, most of those dollars come in within the first 30 to 60 days of the event Mm -hmm. itself. It's often left to larger scale institutions, foundations, community foundations, large scale nonprofits like the Red Cross, like the United Way, to step into these more long term commitments um, to help communities rebuild and thrive long term so that they can, God forbid, be ready for the next disaster because we know it's coming. And how informed are those people who are making the donation, right? Because that's where we fall into some of the traps that we've seen in the past where there are controversies that that crop up and how the dollars are being used and how much transparency is there. But that goes to one of our other conversations that we've had in the podcast this year is about sort of the society's knowledge of nonprofits and how they work and how, you know, the challenge of giving away money and and some of the challenges of just managing the organization. We've got a very uninformed public on that front. Well, now we're going to inform them. All right. <laughs> what a great topic, by the way. It's fascinating. Let's take a quick break. And when we come back, more on disaster relief, disaster philanthropy. listening to Field Notes and Philanthropy. If you're enjoying what you're hearing, hit subscribe. That way you'll never miss a beat. In times of disaster, people need to be able to rely on emergency services and on each other to get back on their feet and begin the long journey of recovery. In a city like Houston, which is still suffering through the long-term effects of Hurricane Harvey, the role of the city's community foundation in building and supporting the public's trust in itself and in philanthropy is particularly salient. That's where we'd like to start with Renee Wizig-Barrios, Senior Vice President and Chief Philanthropy Officer for the Greater Houston Community Foundation. Renee, welcome to the show. It's great to be with you. So Renee, one thing I'm curious about, so we're a year after this hurricane in Houston, and I'm wondering how the Community Foundation thinks about its grant making and how it prioritizes certain things. So I imagine there was this period of time where it's all about the hurricane relief, everything in the city, but then there's the parts where the city starts waking back up and, and things start coming back online and you've got arts organizations and you've got educational organizations and things that are sort of back to normal routine. How do you decide either you know mid-year and then even one year after, how does the Community Foundation think about its grant making and what does it prioritize? Well, so I think it's important to note that the Greater Houston Community Foundation has not played a major role in discretionary grant making in its history. So we're a very donor-focused community Mm. foundation. Interesting. So while our donors have been very focused on disaster relief for the past year, they've also been focused on supporting the community in other ways. So in 2017, our donors gave $170 million in grants, and a good, probably, you know, 15% of that was disaster-related. At the same time, we have been focused on administering the Hurricane Harvey Relief Fund that our mayor, Sylvester Turner, and our county judge, Ed Emmett, set up in a historic partnership with the Community Foundation. 
And we have spent an entire year focused on grant making of that fund. And, and we're not finished, but we have actually raised $114 million and already granted $110 million wow. in a multi-phase wow. approach. So we still have some grant making left to do. But yes, we've, we have been focusing on Harvey and on other things at the same time. And, and within the first, you know, six months of the disaster, most of our staff were spending all of their time only on Harvey-related yeah. focus uh, areas. Um, but that, that has definitely shifted now. Interesting. Are you still seeing donations being made to that fund and other funds? Is the, the conversation about relief needs ongoing such that you are seeing more of the full cycle funding that perhaps philanthropy would like to move its disaster-related efforts towards? We actually closed the fundraising for the Hurricane Harvey Fund in January. And that was very purposeful in the sense that it was meant to really mainly be short and medium-term funding. And what's been great about the response to this disaster in the philanthropic community is we've had multiple funds. So the Hurricane Harvey Relief Fund has been the largest of those, but you also have the Rebuild Texas Fund, which Michael and Susan Dell started. You have the Center for Disaster Philanthropy, which has a small fund. You have the Red Cross. You have United Way. And, and everyone has a different purview in terms of how long they're operating. And particularly for this fund with the public-private partnership, they really felt like it was meant to do grant making in the first year of the fund. Now, many of the grants are longer term, and so people have a year to two years to spend those funds, but we didn't want to be in a perpetual fundraising cycle. Plus, we were worried there might be another hurricane. (laughs) Fortunately, there has not been, but there could have been another disaster. There are certain regions in the United States that historically will have the repeat disaster, right? I mean, you you can Mm -hmm. look at the southeast, you can look at Tornado Alley, you can look at the the forest fires in the west and the northwest and in the Gulf hurricanes. So there's this long history with hurricanes, with Houston are there things that uh, disaster relief organizations traditionally do over and over and over again, but yet are you seeing new areas or new challenges that also need to be addressed? And how do you do that? Yeah, I mean, certainly there are a lot of organizations here who have, through many disasters, figured out how to provide food and shelter and water and immediate relief in effective ways. I believe we have a lot of knowledge about how to do effective disaster case management. But there definitely have been some areas that have become really evident in this disaster that we need to get better and more strategic at. One of those has been legal services. We've had some of the lowest level of FEMA approvals in any disaster, and so it became very, very clear that we were going to need a lot more local legal services to really help people appeal those FEMA awards to deal with contractor fraud and landlord-tenant issues. And we also have a lot of title clearing issues. So people who need to get their homes repaired, but maybe the home has been passed down from one generation to another and there's not clear title. So we've tried to convene all of our legal service organizations and really look at what are the best ways to strengthen them. And we're, we're very excited about some grants that we made to Equal Justice Works, which is a fellowship program that's operated in multiple disasters that helps extend legal services. So that that's one area. Another area I would say is just we have learned that our social sector referral system really needs to be upgraded. And so it's become very clear that we can improve our technology to make it faster for people to get access to services. And so we decided that we were going to innovate in that area. The Hurricane Harvey Relief Fund has granted more than $40 million to local nonprofit agencies focused on home repair. And because we wanted to make sure that the process of getting a home repaired would be as easy for the seeker of service as possible, we decided we needed to create a new system because people were having to shop around and apply at multiple agencies and see who could fix the 
their homes and they, they've already been traumatized and that was really a waste of their time. Mm. So we created something new called Harvey Home Connect, which is basically a one-stop place to apply for home repair that does document screening and then is connected to the agency so that, you know, we know if you need mold remediation or you have a two-story home or you live in this kind of area or your home is this age that we can much more quickly match you with the correct nonprofit and we know that that nonprofit is qualified to do the work can get it done quickly so that we can just make that home repair process a lot faster. And we're hoping to really leverage the learnings from that. So we've partnered with SBP, who's a national disaster organization. And now the city of Houston and, and Harris County are considering for the federal housing programs that are coming online that they may use our system for the initial screening to just make that process go much faster. So that's some of the ways that we've tried to innovate as we're learning areas that we know need to be done better both for this disaster recovery, but for future disasters. I think what's interesting is so you're seeing that that in this situation, you're, you're doing some gap filling, right, where things that are just being needs that are being not being met by public funding, philanthropy stepping in, but also as a source of innovation. I think that's fascinating. When you look at those collaborative of funders who have these funds that are earmarked for Hurricane Harvey, are you do you communicate on a regular basis with, with each other? Or are you just simply carved out your lanes and you're staying in your lanes? Or is there some coordination and communication that goes on on a regular basis? I think there's been very good coordination. Um, so first of all, the Hurricane Harvey Relief Fund in itself represents a huge degree of collaboration and partnership because the city and county appointed the advisory board, who's made up of community leaders. The community foundation suggested a grants committee, which is made up of program officers from multiple private foundations plus community foundation staff. And those two bodies have worked incredibly collaboratively and also had great feedback loops from all of the nonprofits as we've been doing grant making. So our fund in itself is a very unique collaboration and, and in coordination. The United Way has been an advisor to it as well. But then in terms of the other funders, yes, we have been meeting monthly. So Houston Endowment, who's one of our local private foundations, took the leadership to help convene all of us. So we've been meeting regularly to talk about our data sharing, to talk about grantees, to talk about our strategies, our timelines. And, you know, so we have those formal monthly meetings. And then, quite honestly, we have lots of conversation happening about how we can complement each other, how we can leverage each other is giving, you know, what we've known about grantees, how we cannot duplicate, how we can support capacity building. So there's been very little sense of turf in the process. I think there's been a great deal of both coordination and collaboration. Did that kind of coordination and meeting, so some, some communities, all the funders uh, meet at a, on a regular basis ongoing, did that exist prior to this? And Yes, it did, but it's, but it's different. I mean, so what existed before was we had a grant makers forum that private foundations and community foundations would come to, but this is a different group of funders because most of these funders were established after the disaster. So the Hurricane Harvey Fund didn't exist. The Red Cross didn't have a staff down here doing funding. The Rebuild Texas Fund didn't exist. So we had to create this for this particular disaster, but certainly there's a lot of goodwill in the philanthropic community in the greater Houston area that we were able to build on and there were existing partnerships. Nice, nice. Yeah. So you mentioned data briefly in that section. I'm curious about that because, of course, one imagines that in the case of a disaster, it's got to be incredibly difficult to access data. I mean, generally, you're looking at downed power lines all over the city. So our normal online routes of sharing data, our normal portals for looking at and reviewing data would be down. And it's, you know, you're turning to paper in the city archives, perhaps like what, how did the Greater Houston Foundation and, and other organizations kind of deal with any data needs in their response during a disaster? 
Well, sure. And of course, this wasn't a storm that had a lot of wind and, and knocked out a lot of power lines. That's certainly a scenario that could happen. In this case, we, we had all of that. Um, we knew data was going to be very important. So from the beginning, we uh, contracted with Rice University's Kinder Institute for Urban Research to do needs assessments and collect data as much as possible that can inform our grant making. And that was extremely helpful. We partnered with the United Way to get the data from all of their 211 call-in helpline and from 311 from the city call-in helpline. We tried to get FEMA to cooperate and give us data. That was very difficult, and so we'd like to see if there's a way to do data sharing agreements, particularly ahead of time. Mm-hmm. Um, but certainly, we gathered as much data as we could from those sources, and then also we gathered community data and feedback. So once we had the first needs assessment, we actually visited all of the hardest-hit communities and met with people who had been impacted, as well as the nonprofits and the faith-based mm-hmm. communities, to really test out a lot of the assumptions that were coming out of the needs assessment and, and talk about them. But certainly, even with all of that, we felt like we could have used more data, um, and so we're talking a lot about how to do more data sharing in the future. And, uh, you know, it is a challenge by far. And, and you also can't wait for perfect data because it's important that people get the help they need when they need it. So you have to balance this sense of urgency with also the sense of effectiveness and accountability and, and all of that. Well, you're talking about data and analysis, and I would imagine you're you're heavily leaning on government and law enforcement to get some of the the numbers to make some decisions when it comes to dollars and budgeting. But in in your disaster, there were some hidden challenges. I believe there were some chemical releases that that became apparent along the way. So how does a community and how do relief agencies then try to tackle these hidden challenges in the midst of a disaster in the cleanup? Yeah, I mean, I would say we, we weren't we weren't focused so much on on cleanup. I mean, that that's really I think kind of a governmental responsibility rather than a philanthropic responsibility. So that that's not a particular challenge that we tackled. But what I would say is the focus of this one was really on vulnerable populations and filling the gap until government funding could arrive. Even with all the philanthropy uh, that was collected, there's absolutely no way that it could meet the the overwhelming needs of the community. So we knew that government funding was always going to be necessary. And we were very clear that vulnerable populations was going to be our focus. So we were really looking at low-income people, disabled people, elderly, undocumented immigrants, children, veterans, people who were going to need more time and help to recover. And having that kind of laser focus on those populations and looking at where those populations were and the, 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 where the biggest effects were of, of Hurricane Harvey is what I think has allowed us to be successful. And then really understanding which organizations had the relationships and the cultural competency to reach vulnerable people. So one of the things we found was, for example, our school districts were really effective at reaching families because uh, particularly our undocumented population trusts the public schools and and has relationships with the faculty and the staff and the counselors there. And so people would access resources there or through their church communities more than they might at at a traditional big agency that they would be more afraid of. So certainly there are a lot of hidden challenges in the disaster, and and there's a lot of things that that the public sector is going to have to address in regards to mitigation and preparedness and regulation for the kind of thing that you were describing in the chemical world. But for us, the, the biggest issue was being able to work with agencies and, and make sure that they could staff up appropriately uh, to reach the people in need as effectively as possible. I think it's fascinating how what you've learned and 
you know, this process, you know, sort of what hasn't worked well, like, you know, what you made a comment about needing a data sharing agreement with FEMA takes forever to do that with a government agency if you ever succeed at it. And, <laughs> and, and they're very protective of data for a lot of reasons. And so yep, you have to work ahead of time. So there's all these lessons learned of things we needed to do, we should have done, but they're all doable things that could be prepped before the next disaster. Is there, was there ever an effort or have you talked about sort of how do you, opportunity to communicate out to other cities, other communities about what these philanthropic lessons learned have been, things that you've done well, things that didn't go well, but you've learned why they didn't go well, just sort of documenting that for... Um, yeah, yeah, and it's a great question that you asked. We actually released uh, our findings last week about that. So we Sweet. were very, very concerned about making sure that being entrusted with this incredible responsibility, that we learned as much as we could about what we did well and what we could strengthen for next time and, and what, what didn't go so well. So we actually hired FSG, who's one of the mm -hmm. leading social mm -hmm. sector consultancies, to do a full study of all of the processes of the fund. And we released all of our findings because we're, we're very much willing to play this role again for our community, but obviously we want to build on our experience and get better and better. And so there were several key findings there. You know, we, we would love to be able to engage a regional area. You know, we really only were able to focus on our, our county. I mean, that's millions of people, but mm -hmm. there, there were surrounding counties who also could benefit from the kind of structure that we had. And so you can see all the findings if you go to yeah. our website. But one of them is that we want to maintain a standing structure. So it took us a little long to get the first grants out because, you know, the city and county were focused on rescuing people and saving them and, and all of that as they should have been. But because we didn't have the structure established, it took a few weeks to get it up and running and to do the grant making. So we think keeping some kind of standing structure like we've had would be really helpful. We certainly plan to do a full sort of analysis of the nonprofit capacity in the disaster and, and just knowing, you know, there's some smaller organizations and grassroots organizations that really help develop their capacity through our grant making. We want to make sure that they're able to maintain that yeah. um, for the next storm. And we want to identify where there are really gaps. We found outside the city of Houston and some of the county areas that are more unincorporated, we really lacked a lot of capacity and there were a lot of people in need. And so we, we, you know, placed bets on smaller organizations and many of them did really well, but it's a good time to step back and see where do we need to strengthen capacity in certain areas and certainly to work on the data sharing agreements, like you mentioned, to improve the referral systems and to really also look at the ongoing grant making impact. So we, we, we have some sense of the impact. We know that we've impacted 150,000 households so far and we're getting a lot of data from our grantees. But because many of the grants are one to two years in length, it will be a while before we can really fully understand the impact of the grants. I'm curious how these sorts of learnings also lean into this issue of public trust. So there are obviously a number of scandals from the history of disaster philanthropy that we could all point to in cocktail conversation. And there are a lot of issues around governmental response that we could also similarly point to and say that didn't go well. I didn't get the services that I needed from my government. I didn't get the empathy, the compassion, the resources that I was looking for. So can you talk a little bit about kind of the, the unique role philanthropy plays in public trust and community building in times of disaster? I mean, that's a really, like you were talking about with the school systems in Houston, that these were already trusted community partners. And so you were able to access those relationships in order to do the most good. I'm just kind of curious about how that plays out in a moment moment that is so driven by urgency and really high-flying emotions. 
Yeah, well, I think, you know, we, we take so seriously the notion that we are entrusted with the generosity of our donors. And in this case, you know, 127,000 people gave donations to, you know, the Hurricane Harvey Relief Fund. And, and we believe that every single one of them did that with the best of intentions and in helping people in need. And so we take that trust incredibly seriously. And that's a cornerstone of what we do as a community foundation anyway, that we're entrusted with our donors giving intentions and helping them carry those out in an effective way. So we were really committed to transparency all throughout this process and trying to update our donors and the public all the way through about our grant making and what we were trying to achieve and, and helping the nonprofits understand how to apply and also helping them understand what was going to be expected of them in reporting and data. And so I think that, you know, just being transparent and, and really sharing what's working and sharing lessons learned and being willing to talk about things that don't go well as well is very important. I mean, We've so far, it's been interesting. We've had very few grantees who just have not been able to deliver the service that was expected. But we have had a few where they weren't able to do the work and we've had to rescind those funds. I think in total, we've rescinded less than a half a million dollars out of the $110 million we've granted. So, so far, our due diligence processes really worked. And I would say that's a real testament to the Volunteer Grants Committee that gave so many hours. And so we were very committed to you know, really studying the track record and the financials and the leadership of all of these organizations. Even though we were turning grant cycles around pretty quickly, we obviously wanted to make sure that every organization that was being given resources was going to be able to effectively help people. And if and if it was clear, you know, as they were reporting that they weren't able to do so, we would have conversations and find out, you know, did they have a clear path to improvement? And if they didn't, then we would ask for that money back. So I think being willing to do that helps build public trust. But I also just think it's a, it's a constant communication flow that's needed and people need to be able to see the evidence also of, of the work in action. They need to see people being helped. Um, and, and at the same time, you, you know, you're never also going to be with without criticism, because as I mentioned before, unfortunately, the resources are not enough to help everyone in need. So there were people who asked, well, why are you focusing on vulnerable populations? There's plenty of middle class people who also need help. And and quite honestly, you know, we just were very clear. Um, our advisory board set the parameters that most likely if you were if you were middle class, you had access to insurance, you had FEMA, you may have had some savings. And in this case, the people who didn't have any of that to begin with, it was just going to be much harder for them to recover. But certainly, you know, we took those decisions very, very seriously. And it's difficult because you want to be able to help every single person in need. Um, and that's just unfortunately not possible. I think it so reminds us that, you know, being transparent, communicating updating the public, engaging your donors and your community. I mean, that's just good practice all the time. And it leads mm -hmm. to the trust, which then leads to more donations, which leads to more impact. And so in times of crisis or in preparing for crisis, I mean, just good practice always, um, always comes back to that. Well, and people appreciate it. It's amazing. Every time we will send an update, people will say to us, you know, I'm from, uh, you know, X and Y, Mississippi or New Jersey, and I thought you were sending me something to ask for more money. And I was so happy to see that instead mm. you were just telling us how the funds are being nice. used. So mm. I think, yeah. I think oftentimes, you know, fundraisers and others can forget that people really do want to know yeah. um, your progress. And mm. it goes so far to give them an update and not just always be back asking for more funds. Ta-da! <laughs> <laughs> Having a plan, leveraging relationships, adjusting and learning along the way, and sharing that information to be better prepared for the next disaster. Renee Wizig Barrios, Senior Vice President, Chief Philanthropy Officer, Greater Houston Community Foundation. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me, and thank you for all of your listeners who are concerned about this topic. We really appreciate all the support we've received from all over the country to help our community recover. Thank you so much. Thank you. 
You're listening to Field Notes in Philanthropy. Drop us a line at fieldnotes at gvsu.edu. Bob Otenhoff is here. He's president and CEO of Center for Disaster Philanthropy. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks very much for having me. So, Bob, coming into this conversation, I've been thinking a lot about sort of how donors and uh, people respond to disasters uh, philanthropically. And I know that we often think about um, disaster philanthropy like it's an emotional activity that people are reacting to something that they're seeing on TV, images. And there's interesting data about when the when the problem is too great, people tend not to give. But if there's a single story they can stay focused on, they respond. But it seems like there's this trend and this movement towards um, approaching disaster philanthropy in a more strategic way and using data to inform decision-making. And I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on that. Sure. I It may be a little premature to call it a trend. It may be a trend among some foundations or corporations, but there's clearly a growing interest in the subject. And I think part of it is driven by the fact that the number, the sheer number of disasters is increasing and the intensity of the disasters is increasing. And donors are now starting to say, uh, take pause and say, you know, we just can't keep doing things the way we were doing. It's It's no longer sufficient, nor is it sustainable. And so I think there is of a questioning that is beginning to occur among donors saying there's there's got to be a better way to approach disasters in in part because you know they run out of money too soon mm. but it's also it seems like we're on this treadmill and we're never getting really ahead of the issue so what are some of the strategies here in public broadcasting we we're using this sustainer uh, model which means we know that the dollars that are coming in, we try to uh, appeal to more members to become those members for a long term. Is that one of the appeals or one of the strategies, or are there other strategies that disaster philanthropies are now focusing on? There's a couple of things to think about. Uh, One is to recognize that uh, contributing to disasters is going to be part of your contribution strategy. So it's trying to first be more intentional about disasters. So that means having a budget at the beginning of the year, maybe having a team in place that will deal with disasters so you're not scrambling. Uh, It also means trying to set some priorities. You know, what matters to you as a donor or to your corporation? Is it, uh, do you have a certain geography in mind? Do you have a certain kind of disaster that you want to cover? And then it also means beginning to focus on the areas that that resonate with your organization. We often hear uh, foundations will say, well, we don't do disasters. We just occasionally give to disasters. And then I'll say, well, what do you give to? And they'll say, well, we're interested in kids or we give all of our money to conservation projects. And so then I try to connect that to disasters and begin to say, well, if you're really interested in kids, then why not put your money into kid-related disasters before, during, and after disasters. So I think the first step is being more intentional with your disaster giving and then try to be more strategic as well. It does strike me that there's sort of this tension playing out here between 
the perception that disasters are immediate, urgent, and then end, that the needs end, or that they they leave the public sphere, they leave the public mind. And the true functioning and purpose of philanthropy, which is long-term investments, long-term change, I think we're kind of starting to even see that reflected in the media to some extent. I'd be curious on your thoughts on this, that, you know, we're still seeing now a year later stories on Puerto Rico, you know, journalists that are going back and saying, okay, this is what Puerto Rico was like six months out, a year out from Hurricane Maria. They're still visiting neighborhoods where the devastation is still complete a year later. We saw it with the 10th anniversary of Katrina, that there was a great deal of coverage around where we are now, whether things have improved, whether the re- our ability as a city to be resilient has improved. Mm. So I'm curious if you're seeing if the media's revisiting of these issues is kind of helping to push the agenda of thinking about disaster philanthropy as more of a long-term investment strategy. Yeah, I think I think you're that's right. There there's a couple of things going on here. One foundations in particular pride themselves on their systematic data-driven approach to making contributions and they like to think they're thinking uh, long-term for systemic change. And giving all of your money to disasters immediately after the disasters doesn't fit with that scenario. So you're starting to see donors think a little bit more about about long-term impact and putting money into preparedness and putting money into resilience. But you're also right about the um, uh, about the media. In Texas, there are several news organizations that are now following the slow recovery of events in the Houston area, which is pretty unusual. We didn't see a whole lot of that after Sandy, for example. Puerto Rico has continued to stay in the media's eye just because things have been so terrible. First, it was stories about lack of power. Now we had the story hit the news this week that the number of deaths mm. is is much, much higher much than higher. had first been predicted. So Puerto Rico has now stayed alive as a story as well. And that is important for several reasons. One, it keeps it front and center in terms of policymakers, but it also keeps it alive in terms of the number of contributions. We're still seeing a some contributions. I would, wouldn't call it a huge number, but we're still seeing some contributions trickling in for Puerto Rico, which is which is quite unusual. Well, and I think Puerto Rico has benefited from some very visible people here in the states or in the you know this part of the country kind of really championing the you know relief for puerto rico but you know don't you think there's another elephant in the room here which is sort of confusion that people generally in the media has and people generally has about the you know sort of process of giving money away and that there's inherent challenges it sounds great there's a million dollars we're going to give it away in small grants and but that's actually can be a much more complicated process and i think that's where some of the scandals in the disaster philanthropy have popped up yeah, there there is this sense that if I make a contribution, um, the problem has been solved, and donors are then surprised to hear a later an hour a, a year later that not everybody's back in their homes yet, or there's still problems with infrastructure or, or education. So I think the whole issue of long-term recovery is is starting to gain a little bit more traction and a little bit more understanding um, among the public. How much of the perception, though, is 
um, the response itself. Uh, when government doesn't respond well, when FEMA has its issues, how does that impact the giving or the transparency that we see or we don't see? Because we talk about the media reporting on these things. How does all of this impact donors? I mean, we're talking about new strategies, but overall, these are events that are happening. They're in the moment and it's all about response. And we're even seeing new ways to respond. There's Team Rubicon, and these are ex-military veterans who are responding, and they do things differently from maybe some of the old school responses that we've seen. So as this all changes and we talk about transparency, response, how, do, how does that impact donors today? So I think there is the big issue of trust in philanthropy, and then there's the specific issue of disasters. So in general, we're starting to see more skepticism about about the nonprofit sector and the, the effectiveness of the nonprofit sector. And I think lack of confidence definitely has an impact on, um, on contributions. And that's why I'm such a strong advocate of transparency and, and accountability, among other things. When it comes to disasters, people don't think about that when they first make their contribution. They just give because they're they're moved by media coverage or by the the story in general, and so most of the money is then given you know within thirty or sixty days. Uh, but then the stories will begin to trickle out about a housing scandal or FEMA not getting people back in their homes soon enough, and so I don't think those have an, a direct impact on the dollars given to that disaster, but they may add to this lack of trust in nonprofits and in government in general. It's interesting that disasters are one of the few ways where we're publicly measuring the effectiveness of nonprofit work. When you think about it, we give hundreds of millions, billions every year to nonprofit organizations, and we rarely know how well they're doing in terms of achieving whatever their mission is. When it comes to disaster giving, we begin to right away hear stories about whether houses are being rebuilt or schools are reopening. So it's a in, a, in an odd kind of twist, it's one of the few ways where we're actually measuring effectiveness of, of the dollars that have been contributed. That's interesting. It makes me wonder about, is there interplay between philanthropy and government in terms of like philanthropy in a disaster relief situation, like leveraging government or encouraging a governmental response? So if masses of people all contribute to something, does that prompt even um, if it's in another country, like our, our government responding or prompt the local government to respond more because there are people donating in such extensive amount. And or if like a foundation, like a Gates Foundation makes a significant gift, are they leveraging philanthropy? And so as a requirement, we get this gift, but the government has to do X because there's a limitation on the philanthropy. It's $400 billion, but government has so much more capability to make investment. And I think there's an interesting extra piece here, which is if you think about if you think about Harvey, if you think about Maria from a year ago, there was a significant amount of money raised by the previous U.S. presidents all banding together and saying donate hmm. to this one particular One America fund. And that's politics and philanthropy in a different way, because hmm. that's still about civic engagement. And it's still about the influence of political power within philanthropy in a time of disaster. But they're not responsible for 
handing out water bottles, for instance, specifically. That's still the role of FEMA. So there are kind of two elements of this government or throwing paper question. towels. There's also budgeting at the federal level and organization at the federal level yeah. that plays into this as well. Bob, help us sort this out. Yeah, so I think philanthropy has traditionally thought it doesn't need to interact much with government. I did a, I moderated a session after Sandy and among uh, three or four large foundations, and I asked them what was their biggest regret, and they said, we regret we had not been in touch with local and state government authorities before the disaster struck, because it was only after the disaster that we realized we really needed their support and cooperation in order wow. to accomplish any of our plans. And so I think, you know, there's certainly exceptions. We've seen this with international aid and with health-related activities. But in general, philanthropy has had the attitude, we can do our work without any relationship with government. And that's a big mistake when it comes to disasters. You rightly point out that uh, the amount that FEMA and other federal agencies will donate to, let's say, Harvey, are enormous. Uh, You're talking tens of billions of dollars that will be given. And it far outweighs the billion or so that will come from contributions from individuals, corporations, and foundations. So I think, you know, what this puts is extra pressure on philanthropy to be really, really smart about where it's going to invest its limited resources. So what we try to do is, in our work here at the Center for Disaster Philanthropy, is try to find out where FEMA is going to put in dollars FEMA has lots of money, yes, but it also has lots of restrictions about what it can do and can't do. So we try to find out where those areas are and then use the philanthropic dollars to fill in the gaps or to do things that no federal agency either has the the time or the expertise to do. So I think there's a lot more work that could be done to figure out ways to coordinate with government, to leverage government dollars, to use the Uh, philanthropic dollars as really springboards that can get much more impact out of the government dollars. That's so fascinating, really. I mean, I hadn't thought about the Center for Disaster Philanthropy in that lens, that kind of coordination. And wow, that's brilliant. So I'm curious, too, about whether you find yourself coordinating with the media at all, in that so much of this giving is prompted by seeing images of, you know, parents and children on rafts, rafting away down the street in front of their home or puppies and trees. I mean, so much of this is very much a visual experience that is shaped for us by members of the media, by what what journalists are videoing, what they're asking, the people that they talk to. So is there a place for the Center for Disaster Philanthropy or or for other organizations or individuals to be talking to the media about how that story gets told or how how donors kind of get the message of what the needs are, the fact that it's going to take a while for recovery to actually happen. You know, what's kind of that relationship aspect here? Well, we think media is extremely important to how our society responds to disasters. So we do focus a fair amount of attention on disasters. I probably did 30 media interviews last September when the disasters were happening in um, Texas and Florida and Puerto Rico. You know, media today is so decentralized and it's under so much pressure 
to deliver quickly. It's hard to keep their attention for a long period of time. And so we try to help them as much as we can during those short days when they are going to cover it. And we've actually experimented a few times with providing grants to media organizations to continue the discussions. We did this in New Jersey where we provided grants to local media organizations to continue to discuss planning, long-term planning issues in the state of New Jersey. We most recently gave a grant to the Texas Tribune, which has been quite active in covering stories uh, in Texas about planning, preparation, long-term recovery. So we think media is extremely important to the mix. To be clear there, those uh, for our listeners who are tuning in on that, um, those would be grants that help support the work, but that do not determine the stories in any way that are being written by the media. Oh, absolutely. We recently, WGVU, we had a a donor membership uh, breakfast at Meyer Gardens, and Lakshmi Singh was there from NPR. And the question did come from the audience about Puerto Rico. And I thought it was a great question. And Lakshmi essentially said, NPR has a reporter in place flying in and out and following that story because it was such a big story. And again, I talked about government response and what had been taking place there. And so NPR felt it necessary to, to devote a reporter, to fund that reporter to be there. And I think that's great. I, I think the idea of having grants in place and to fully tell a story is a great idea. As a reporter myself, you're a one-man band. You go in, you're looking at the disaster, you want to stay safe, and you're looking for those emotional stories. You're looking for that person, that family that's distraught and that has experienced something that they can deliver on that emotional level that you can also you know, have that you, – you understand those feelings. And so that's what reporters are looking for when they – when they walk into these stories, because really we don't know what we're going to find. And there are stories everywhere. So I think the idea of, you know, focusing on that family or that situation or the rebuild or whatever it is, and to draw that out, I think is a great way to keep a disaster in focus, top of mind. And that also then builds on those philanthropies out there that help in the cleanup and in the relief. And as um, Bob actually mentioned during our kind of prep call before this episode recording, that journalists really need an event to hang on to, a particular hurricane, a bombing, something that's really kind of has clear parameters. And it's hard, much harder to tell the stories of something that is an ongoing crisis like Syria um, or like Yemen that we're hearing a lot about uh, recently, that you have to find individual families or particular businesses or particular communities that have been truly affected in order to help the people back at home essentially understand what's going on and really get a sense of how the day-to-day experience of disaster plays out. So I find it interesting how, just reflecting on this, how much pressure has been put on media and sort of people in in you know situ- in a position like Bob and doing some you know, education and, and and capacity building for the media to report on this topic but you're seeing the media kind of nervous I think a little bit on you know sort of like when there's a school shooting like do we say the shooter's name do we not say the shooter there's just a lot of you know, media is going through a lot of turmoil I think just sort of pressure has been put on it and um, a spotlight has been shown on on the practice of media so it's good to have somebody like Bob Ottenhoff coaching the media and helping them position their stories in the right way that's going to be helpful to those who are most affected by the disaster. So Bob, thank you so much for joining us today. What a fascinating conversation. What a fascinating role that you play at the Center for Disaster Philanthropy. 
Well, thank you so much for the opportunity to speak with you. I, I enjoyed it. And thank you for introducing this topic to your listeners. Maureen Patrick, this is the end of the first season of Field Notes in Philanthropy. It's been an incredible year. Yeah, I can't believe it. We've gotten through a whole nine episodes this year. We've covered everything from foundations on Capitol Hill to net neutrality to the importance of the census for nonprofits and foundations. And really, we just cannot thank enough all of our wonderful listeners who have joined us on this journey. It's been an experience. It's been an experiment. Uh, We've had some great conversations and wonderful interviewees, and we're just really grateful. So thank you to everyone. Yeah, that's for sure. But our listeners shouldn't get too worked up or upset because we are likely to pop up in your feed with emergency podcasts during the election in the fall. So we are planning to come back and reflect on things that are happening with shorter episodes, but for a launch in early 2019 with the next season. So don't get too sad. You can always log on. You can subscribe now. We're going to be here. We're not going anywhere. Season two, just around the bend. Thanks, everyone. Field Notes in Philanthropy is a partnership of WGVU Public Media, the Dorothy A. Johnson Center for Philanthropy, and Grand Valley State University. Our technical producer is Rick Beerling. Joe Moran composed our theme music. The views and opinions expressed on Field Notes in Philanthropy do not necessarily reflect those of WGVU, the Dorothy A. Johnson Center for Philanthropy, or Grand Valley State University. Tori, Patrick, this is the end of ep season one. This is the end, my only friend, the end. You realize that's at the end of the episode now? Yes. I don't even know what we're doing anymore. <laughs> we have Volcano.